Greetings Grapple fans and welcome to another of Let Me Tell You Something's many branches of podcasting universe. This one specifically being Match of the Week. I am Simon Cross and with me as always is the rocker rock to my Johnny Grunge, the Sabu to my Tasmaniac. It is... Locan Milan. <laughs> oh, that's... Now, listeners won't know... But I did butcher a pronunciation of Sabu earlier to comical. You did it again. You just did it then. <laughs> Sabu. Well, I had to. Otherwise, they wouldn't know. I meant that. I, meant, I totally meant the second one. I totally meant it. <laughs> We've already given away who's involved, but what is the match we're talking about? Well, we're talking about a double el- elimination tables match between Public Enemy and Sabu and the Taz... <laughs> Sabu. <laughs> I'm a Tasmaniac. Oh. So, Simon, this was your pick? Yeah. No. You've got to explain how we got to talking about your least favourite kind of match, and yet it being your decision. Yes. So, broadly, I wanted to talk about the public enemy, because I've obviously heard a lot of legend about original WCW, the one without Durag Vince. ECW, you mean? Yes, about ECW. I was trying to like... I did WWE ECW too quickly in my brain. That's what happened there. (laughs) About ECW. So, and I knew the public enemy were like... If you wanted to use AEW's metric, not one of the four pillars, but a very important part of what ECW looked like, what ECW was, they they were definitely a tag team mainstay. So I wanted to see what that looked like. Therefore, I picked this match. Now, in life... Regret is um, an interesting emotion, (laughs) but it's also an opportunity to learn. And I hope through the next God knows how many minutes, because it is us at the end of the day, you can utilize our regret as a learning point. (laughs) I think what this is a great example of is how everyone said one of Paul Heyman's greatest attributes as a booker, as a showman, as a presentation of what ECW was was that he would accentuate someone's positives and hide their negatives as best as he could. Mm. The interesting thing about The Public Enemy and your choice of them is you can argue that they are... Well, I don't even think you can argue about it. It's just as a fact that they were the first new concept, act, gimmick, born in Paul Heyman's ECW and cultivated there, and homemade stars. Obviously, there were figures like Sabu, and the Taz and other ones that did come in and were big stars within ECW more than anywhere else. But they all, some of them came from their reputations already. Sabu was already tearing it up on the independent scenes in Japan and elsewhere before he comes to ECW where he really becomes a main event star and sort of the king of the indies essentially, depending on how you look to what ECW was at this point. And Taz, similarly, had been doing his Tasmaniac shtick all around the place. He'd had some tryout matches in the WWF in 1993, even before ECW was really a thing outside of Eastern Championship Wrestling. But the public enemy was the first instance of Paul Heyman having an idea for a gimmick, putting it on two journeyman 
Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Northeast wrestlers that frankly didn't have much in themselves to go off of to make it in wrestling. At this point, Rocco Rock is already 42 years old. And Johnny Grunge isn't that much younger. Like, at the start of his run with ECW, he, gives, he has them coming out to the hot stepper, have them doing the, waving their arms in the air as if they weren't under any due pressure by outside influences. And having the hip-hop look and everything, which wasn't, you know, it was 1993, and the closest other hip-hop acts in wrestling at that time had been PN News in WCW mm. and Men on a Mission at the same time as the WWF. But whilst they were the family-friendly idea, and my name is Johnny and I'm here to say, it's cool if in school you stay. That kind of hip-hop that they were being presented. So with the public enemy, they put an edge to it. And they came out with their... Because obviously they didn't have great physiques, they weren't big guys, but you put them in big old... I think it was hockey shirts for the most part. Hockey or NFL, they could be like NFL-style shirts, because both are... Very loose fitting. Neither of these guys are in great shape. Neither of these guys are that tall. I think Rocco Rock was like five foot nine. Johnny Grunge was under six foot. Fortunately, they're in the ring with Taz and Sabu. So as long as you don't have lots of people at the average height of WWF, then until they go to the WWF, then you realize what they're working with. Like 911 was their monster and he was like six foot six, five, maybe. How mad's that? To say that like, six foot six is like, oh, check it out. When you said Taz had matches in, for the WWF in 1993, I'm just, in my head, I've got Vince going, no, just pure no. <laughs> I don't know, because the Tasmaniac character that we were seeing here, which was more, it's like halfway between his suplex machine character, because he is doing suplexes throughout this match, but he's also got the wild hair, he's got the singlet. He's playing up a madness to him, like he'd worked with Kevin Sullivan in the past. He works within that milieu, and he's the right guy to match up with the similarly manic Sabu character. Yeah. So you could easily take a cartoonish angle with that. And also, him being significantly shorter but stockier could almost work in that environment, because then he surprises them with the suplexes and the throws and everything. And it's not like there weren't funny lower card, mid card acts in the WWF that were of that height, because that you know the Bushwhackers were all were both like five foot eight, five foot nine. Are you basically saying that Taz could have ended up as nineteen ninety three Shorty G? Sort of, yes, but sort of no. But you know, this is nineteen ninety three to nineteen ninety five WWF. All kinds of crazy shit was going on there. That was very much the throwing shit at the wall and only ending up with a very shit covered wall. <laughs> <laughs> time for the WWF, which we'll be talking about more of in episodes soon to come. What's funny with this is showing you, you get a sense of why ECW was the hottest thing in the underground, burgeoning, smart fandom culture of wrestling at the time, and why it doesn't necessarily hold up today. Because you've got to remember as well, this is 1995, so the options the fans have is watching the Dungeon of Doom on WCW and Hulk Hogan trying to milk the last of his relevancy as a baby face for all it's worth. Yeah. And at the same time, you've got the WWF, and they've gone so far down the cartoon route, and you've got Diesel as the champion, and Todd Pettengill as the host of their shows, and it's like as far away from edgy as the WWF ever were, really. And ECW was the one that kind of pushed both sides to 
follow their lead. And what's a funny coincidence as well with this conversation is what's the thing that Rocco Rock says when he gets on the microphone before the match? All you computer internet mutants, now you're going to see some real wrestling. This was just under 30 years ago, and we're still having wrestlers essentially saying that now. I don't want to date us, but at the... Well, I, you know, I like you, Simon, but not in that way. At the time of recording, Cage Match have actually ris- issued an edict basically going any mentions to AEW and WWE matches and likewise will result in banning. So the Internet Mutants, look, 30 years ago, like they, they were just complaining about match quality. That Now they've like, ironically enough, mutated into some sort of like weird tribalism <laughs> is all I'm saying. Well, it's still... It's still match quality, isn't it? Now it's statistical, mathematical evidence to it. Yeah, but also it's tanking ratings on purpose for rival promotions and so all other kinds of, like, weeb shit. Like, go out and touch grass. I know as a, a podcast host for a wrestling podcast, that's, like, a weird thing to say. And also, we're, we live in the Midlands, so... Go out and touch very brown grass, or very or very sodden grass at the time of recording. Awesome. Cement, if that's all you can <laughs> Cement with the with a small daisy growing out of the cracks. Indeed. Indeed. Sorry, I forgot you were more city based. Or more major city based rather. But so when you realised this was a tables match, did did your stomach drop? Did your A little bit. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna hide. Why do you hate tables matches so much? This both disproved me and proved me this match. So I'll go to my origins first. I hate WWE tables matches because it's all a case of, whoa, oh, oh, nearly, oh, I nearly hit the table. And they do that so many times. And they don't, they never executed a Vince WWE tables match well. Now, to my knowledge, there's not been one under the Triple H era yet. So it could be that changes. And you, you've mentioned a couple of Dudley's matches to me, which might change my point of view. And who knows? They may end up future matches of the week. But I just feel like, isn't you complaining about wobbly, are they going to go through the table, is it or isn't it, spots? Like complaining about a regular match having two counts. Have I just made you question everything? Then? No. It's the level of how contrived it is. That's what sets them apart in my eyes. Because any wrestling match will have a two count in it. Like, what, nearly every wrestling match. There are examples that don't, of course. We've cited a famous one in New Japan. I cannot remember the exact participants. But obviously people are just trying to win the match. And that's that's just something that naturally happens. There will be a two count. Because someone will kick out, obviously. Because the whole object of... Resting at its core is to get pinned for a free count. When you add gimmicks to this, and I have a friend who hates I Quit matches for the same reason I hate tables matches, is that regular moves get changed into like, oh, it's going to be super murder death kill because he shoulder tackled him and there was a table within like eight feet. So he might have gone through it. And it's how he or she will gravitate to um, the table and then not wobble near it. It's it's how they like link it in. And my friend's gripe with the I Quit matches is how it'll be John Cena doing like two-fifths of the five moves of Doom. 
And then the ref will run over with a microphone. Do you quit? I'm like, it's two shoulder tackles. Grow up. I, I get very exercised about tables matches. No, what I get exercised about, and it isn't... It's it's more that I've seen tables matches showing this more than any other type of matches, is contrived spots. Contrived spots are what I hate most in wrestling, I think. Well, tables being involved in wrestling is... There's such contrivance to them anyway. It's very hard to do a natural table spot. And... Uh, uh, we're going to have to call a moratorium on them at some point, but I'm going to have to cite Bret Hart. One of the best early table spots, and this was in 1995 WWF, so again, was that the start of the influence of ECW and Sabu really popularizing tables and the public enemy. So it was essentially the two table gimmick guys feud going at each other in Sabu and the and the public enemy, and Taz being along for the ride is Brett did, and it was a common spot that he'd do anyway, where he'd be on the apron, and then he'd get shoved off it, and usually Brett would slam into the guardrail. One time he did it, and he broke his sternum. And he talks about that in the uh, Wrestling With Shadows documentary. But this time, they did it so that he was in line with the announcer's table. And so he flies off and flies straight through the announcer's table ringside. And it wasn't set up. There was no none of this uh, Chekhov's... There was none of this Chekhov's gun stuff. Around. And yes, not clearing it. So there were monitors and wires flying all over the place as well. So it was an early step to that. And it's funny then when Shawn Michaels does it with Diesel six months down the line, it's just him being powerbombed directly onto the table. Not that it's just an accident of fate. It's just that is Diesel's intention. But again, it's not going to that more contrived thing of them moving, clearing tellies and that out of the way. You'd think if someone wants to hurt someone badly, throwing them onto a table where there are tellies all over the place that could dig into their back and everything would be more logical to do and save you time for them to recover and put you through the table, which is what happens half the time. I have a theory on that, that it's how we've been conditioned because obviously they do it for a safety reason as wrestlers, and that's great, but the generation that's growing up with wrestling throughout the Attitude Era, all they had to do was press a certain button on the PS2 and it would get cleared. And it would trigger a clearing animation, which obviously in the game coding meant that 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 part of the environment is ready to be broken. And I think as a result, we as a wrestling fan base have become conditioned to, well, you can't do it without clearing it. Well, it's also like we as a fan base have been conditioned into if there is some sort of wild weapons filled match, especially in WWE and to a slightly lesser extent AEW, the match isn't over until a table's involved. Mm. Was it during the Swerve Strickland match? All of these crazy things with barbed wire and blocks of uh, concrete or whatever it was (laughs) and all those things. And yet they were still chanting for tables even after a barbed wire board had already been brought out and it's like in the escalation stakes that's like going into the final fight in a marvel avengers movie hoping you're gonna get and see some one-on-one action between ant-man and yellow jackets you know it's like it's not the point that we've built up to it shouldn't be logically and I guess, again, it was like the outsized influence of ECW was. And it's not like table spots weren't there already. Randy Savage had done stuff in Memphis involving the table. He famously pile drove one of the Rock and Roll Express. I'm assuming it was Ricky Morton through a table. 
Terry Funk used tables in the in his feud with Ric Flair, pile driving him on it after the Steamboat match, setting off their feud. Hulk Hogan and Harley Race did some spots involving the ringside tables. It wasn't anything new, but with Sabu, it was like his defining gimmick. Like when he do shows, oftentimes after the show was finished, he would then try to break a table himself just by moonsaulting onto it. And, as I said, Public Enemy just picked that up and went with it even more. And then it was just like, there's tables everywhere. And there's, it's like Cactus Jack saying that, like, everything just got escalated too far. And it's like, oh, if everyone bleeds, then what does it mean if I bleed? And he thinks he's going to, you know, if I bleed in this match, it will really help get the storyline going. And then he sees the people from the opening match coming into the back, each one after the other, and they're all bleeding. Because it was a last blood battle royal that they'd had to open... A last blood battle royal. Yeah. To open a pay-per-view. It wasn't a pay-per-view. It was just a regular... Oh, fuck! Like, 1994 indie show. Wow. But that was the influence that ECW was having at this point. You had Axel Rotten and Ian Rotten having Taipei death matches where they were wrestling with glass on their fists, in theory. I don't know if they gimmicked it up or whatever. It might have been sugar glass for safety purposes. Yeah. And so, again, ECW, they knew they didn't have the top quality wrestlers, so they had to cover it with ultraviolence. And then, as 95, 96, 97 goes on, you get wrestlers who can do more stuff in the ring. You get your Malenkos and your Satins and your Guerreros and your Benoits, and Benoit pops up at the end of this match. But also, after that, the ones afterwards, guys like Raven, who could do more with an in-ring psychology. And they brought up guys like Sandman and Tommy Dreamer that maybe relied too much on the gimmickry. And then you had Rob Van Dam, Jerry Lynn, those kind of guys that, again, could do more in the ring than what Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge ever could hope to do. Rocco Rock was one of those guys, he was like, you know, you get these precursors, and as I say, he's 42. He was just a journeyman guy on the indies, and he had been since, like, the late 70s. But he had these aspirations, and he was trying to do high-flying... He was getting the earliest junior heavyweight stuff, and he had a gimmick of, like, a cheetah mask or something. He was trying to do a Philadelphia version of Tiger Mask. But whilst he had some athletic skill, and we see it in here, he does, like, a -a tilt-a-whirl into an arm drag. So he can do some of it, but he's still not of that level that's, like... A bestie would be a mid-carder in an indie promotion now. But at this point, being at that level of skill was enough that Paul Heyman was going, okay, you got enough fundamentals that I can cover the rest with violence and a fun gimmick, and you're going to be main eventers. And they were main eventers. Paul Heyman had them squashing tag teams for months, had them put over by the Funks. They literally brought in Dory Funk Jr. as well as Terry Funk, had them lose to the public enemy and losing barbed wire matches. And this match, like, Sabu going up against the public enemy in 1995 for ECW, that's, like, as close as they come to, like, Hulk Hogan against the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania six at that point. <laughs> Genuinely. Like, public enemy were the first ECW stars, and Sabu was the first star who, who was seen as a part of ECW. Like, they were able to claim him. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, had a repertoire before, prior, but... Yeah. ECW was the gut where where you went to get the best presentation of him. And, like, Paul Heyman did all sorts of fun things. He used to have him enter with, like, a Hannibal Lecter mask and on a gurney. And the idea was that 911, like I said, the biggest member of the roster, all six foot six of him, was the only guy that could kind of handle him. He couldn't beat him in a match because 911 was an awful wrestler. So Paul Heyman didn't have him wrestle a match for years. 
and he was like super over. And then when he tried to get wrestling matches, that was when it was kind of done for him. It was all good till the bell rang. And it's also funny as well. Like I so because I came into ECW like around ninety six, ninety seven was when I started to look at the sport PWI magazines and everything and Power Slam. And so I was hearing about ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine ECW, which was post the Public Enemy. Because they left at the start of 96 to go to WCW, where they were quickly exposed and were just lower card jobbers almost immediately. They had a good brawl with the Nasty Boys, but the thing was, the Nasty Boys could brawl better than the public enemy actually could do. And they could have regular tag team matches of a decent quality. Like, if you watch the match the Nasty Boys had with the Steiner Brothers in 1990, and the matches they were having with the Legion of Doom and the Heart Foundation in 1991, the public enemy would not have been able to keep up with that pace. So really, they were just fodder for fun little spots involving tables, and I think both of them got beaten by Goldberg on numerous occasions in 1998 WCW Monday Nitros and Thursday Thunders and everything. But I think you can also get the sense, despite us obviously both not enjoying this match, why they were saying like a 100 wrestling fans from all over the world had come to Philadelphia for this convention to see this show and watch what was the hottest promotion in Western wrestling at the time, which was ECW. Because you wouldn't see this in WCW, you wouldn't see this in WWF. Them just brawling in the crowd. I think ECW must have been a great thing to see if you were in the ECW arena. Oh, yeah. Watching it after the fact, like I did when I finally caught it on Bravo, and it was 1996 ECW, and I was like, this is 1998, why are we putting this on? And also seeing, like, oh, most of these guys aren't actually the best wrestlers. (laughs) And the production isn't the best quality either. Uh, And this is the curious part of the lens that I view original ECW through. I hear a whole myriad of people go about how influential it was at the time, like how groundbreaking it was, how no one was doing this at the time. And I'm very glad that Lorcan's added this context to this discussion we're having about this specific match. But there is an element of... Maybe I've been jaded with being the wrestling fan in the generation I'm in. But in terms of, like, the spots that actually do take place in this match, they're not that shocking to me. They're not that groundbreaking. But again, in 1995, they would be. In 1995, seeing someone crashing through multiple tables in this match, and it's not very safe tables either. There's splinters flying all over the Mm. place. And seeing character as manic and crazy as Sabu with the scarred up body. That is as crazy to a wrestling fan now as seeing Hangman Page literally drinking the blood of Swerve Strickland was in 2023. Mm. It was of that equivalence of craziness. It's like if you listen to Nevermind the Bollocks now, it doesn't sound that crazy. You're like, there are pop songs that are basically as hardcore as this is. But in 1977, it does mean something different. Black Sabbath in 1968-69 sounds like something from the depths of hell. Now it just sounds like slightly hard rock. And I went into this purely just to see what the public enemy were. That's why I selected this match. And that's the lens... I think what you're saying is right. That's the lens you have to view them in of what they were at the time. It's it's difficult for me when when I was like literally four when this match happened... (laughs) It's it's difficult for me. By the time that I I knew of this match's existence, I'd I'd gone through the Attitude Era and all the blood drinking and and what hardcore matches had become. And we've covered like ultra violent tournament of death matches and and the like as part of our match of the week series prior to this. 
Yeah, well, that's what I was saying when I... That FMW Texas Death yeah. match with Onita and Goto against some middle-aged accountant and his bald maniac of a friend. Compare that to this, and it, ECW doesn't match up. That was clearly an inspiration for them with this show, but they didn't even have the Onitas out there to get that level out of it. But Paul Heyman knew how to present it, knew how to package it, knew how to market it, knew how to get a fan base to care about the brand even more than any of the wrestlers. I can't say that I don't think mid-90s ECW is, for the most part, overrated. I do think that. But I also don't want to denigrate the experience that they felt that they felt it i don't dispute it and that's what you're alluding to is it element of here's the level of innovation they added at that specific time plus rose tinted glasses and as a result the lens you've got of nostalgia plus the rose tint leads to a level of over significance in people's eyes because I don't know if it's significance. I think the significance is true. The significance is the truest part. But the rating of it on, like, artistic merits is lost. The reason that certain guys stand the test of time, certain music, certain movies, certain wrestlers, certain matches stand the test of time is because they have these fundamentals to them and a timelessness. And they're not chasing whatever's hot in that moment. Like, there's going to be a point where Barbie's going to be... It's being overrated right now. There's a point where people are going to turn on it and be too harsh to it. And then over time, what's, what you feel about Barbie's not a statement of fashion. And in the cold light of day, you can see for what it was, which was a very funny film with some good satirical points, but it can't do the full job of defining all of feminism, which, unfortunately, every work that aspires to feminism is judged by unfortunately yeah the parallels i drew with the barbie film which i've not seen so i I can't draw similar parallels but the parallels i drew was uh bill burr's rant about rollerblading when he was on the joe rogan podcast (laughs) yes maybe that's what this public enemy match is like oh everyone did it at the time but now no one wants to admit that they liked public enemy yeah they're not a team that's like unless you're a proper like the best days of my life were 1993 to 1995 in Philadelphia, and then you might still try and ch- claim it. But I don't think a GCW fan would watch this and think this holds up. That Because I tell you what, we do need to talk about specifically the Hardy Boys against the Dudley Boys 2000 Royal Rumble match, because I do think that's maybe the best tables matches. And it's falling under these similar rules of you've got to put both of the other team through a table. The difference is that it's structured, it's paced, it builds to a crescendo. It's better covered by the cameras. It has better commentary that are telling us the story. And the people involved collectively are better wrestlers. Sabu was a guy that could do amazing things, but really was luck of the draw as to whether... I mean, this is 1995 Sabu, so he's hitting things much more often than he isn't, which was more like 97 onwards Sabu. And Taz is a good, solid wrestler, but he hasn't found himself yet in his perfect form, which is Taz character he comes up with in 96. And this is the build-up to the, the feud between those two that's maybe another one of those ones you can make a case that Sabu versus Taz, at least from a booking perspective, was the best-built storyline feud in all of ECW, along with Tommy Dreamer versus the Raven as well. But they just don't have the physical ability to do the craziest spots and have it make it look good. They don't have the space in the arena to do the best stuff. You know, the Hardy Boys were getting to work with the Dudley Boys in Madison Square Garden. 
<laughs> in front of that kind of an audience and they were being produced and managed and they had they were filmed in the right way and they had good quality tables but they also knew how to tell a story i could not follow and i got a sense the crowd couldn't follow who had been eliminated at this point and why was because there are more than three table spots that go through in this match yeah there's a referee missing interference and there's a referee not figuring out who went through a table just a few minutes ago <laughs> Yeah, the, the uh, scorekeeping by, by the officials in this is wank. But what's so funny as well, like I, I say, the action is limited, but they even know it, and that was part of the appeal of the public enemy as well, that they were just no-nonsense brawlers. But not even that good a brawler. Like I said, if you put their brawling up against that Sushi Onita's brawling, I know which one I would prefer watching, or Terry Funk brawling, or you know, even like when Daniel Bryan would get into a brawl, or Bryan Danielson, he could brawl better than the public enemy could. Yeah, and look, most of the matches of the weeks we watch, we watch in isolation with like little knowledge of what the context is beforehand, and definitely zero emotional connection to the context beforehand. That's where potentially they suffer compared to like the matches of the five star projects, which are within our branches. And we, I say this about wrestlers. That's one of the reasons I rate certain matches five stars over others is because can I pick this up as an outsider and feel like enough of an emotional attachment to what's going on in the ring for it to hook me and potentially make me become a wrestling fan, or, or at least let me look. Like, care about the the story in the ring this doesn't do that no i got the sense of the crowd it's hard to gauge how into it the crowd were or not as well really i mean that's just poor picture and audio quality as much as anything because it's 1995 ecw and is it brand allegiance over quality allegiance oh yeah but the thing is almost the lack of quality is part of the appeal especially with the public enemy at one point this I wrote down this quote from John from Joey Styles because it's like them copying to it as well. Joey Styles says, "Johnny Grunge with a belly to belly, I'll be damned. He can wrestle." They say that about their own wrestlers, their tag team champions. Yeah, it's not. It's not great, is it? No. But it's also funny seeing Paulie Dangerously still, the manager, because as I said, I got into ECW around 96, and at that point, Heyman had essentially become an off-camera part of the show, but he was working as a manager of Sabu and Taz, and he had his own Dangerous Alliance when he came there. But I guess it was actually, because it was around this time, Sabu walked out of the company for a while, and that was, and as you're saying, like, brand allegiance over wrestlers, a popular chant at the ECW arena for the next few months is, fuck Sabu until he turned up at november to remember and it was all forgiven (laughs) again but i won't get into all the history of the sabu taz feud we can talk about that for another time i mean this is funnily the second ecw match you've chosen with taz in it because one of our early match of the week picks was taz against bam bam bigelow yes and that was one of your picks as well are you Taz in ECW'd out now at this point, or do you think you might pick a Taz Sabu one for later on? See, now you've mentioned it, the part of my brain is like, that's contrarian. It's like, no, no, I won't. But Taz, Taz in ECW is a very interesting vein to explore, so... Well, I think we discussed it in the Bam Bam Bigelow thing. Again, like, he was clearly such an influence. Like, there was so much of Taz in, like, low-key Samoa Joe... All of these guys. There's a reason that TNA 
linked him with Samoa Joe when he came first came to the promotion and at time of recording they're setting up a Samoa Joe hook match but funnily enough isn't it interesting though that this is still Taz for the most part playing the gimmick the wild man gimmick although compared to what he's around he's the straight man of this match yeah but it is then when they create the Taz gimmick and you can so tell that is so much more the guy than the Tasmaniac ever was that that's the one that he finds himself with that's his Final form, essentially. Yeah. And then he goes to WWE and has to become a, a snivelling, inept <laughs> idiot who gets whipped by Steve Austin before going off to become a colour commentator and the master of the digression. Oh. But we digress. <laughs> Do you have anything else more to say? It's just like, people go through tables, eventually Sabu and Taz win. And then Chris Benoit comes in and they're going to put them through another table. You know, it's just, it was like table spots. At some point the bell rings and there are more table spots. They know what they like, and they deliver a lot of it. <laughs> but it is also funny, like, the early days of the internet and everything, and there's a video, if you want to find it online, and I'm guessing it must have been from this convention that they held, where Paul Heyman predicted that WCW Monday Nitro is about to get destroyed. And he's like, half right, half wrong. <laughs> in a weird way. It's worth watching. And in a lot of ways, that is Paul. But it is also interesting looking at what the rest of this card was you had. Jason the Terrible and the Pitbulls against Hack Myers and the Young Dragons. Tommy Dreamer against Stevie Richards with Raven. Mikey Whipwreck against Paul Laurier. Ian Rotten against Axel Rotten. As I was saying, they were doing like ultra-violent stuff, really. Like, the most violent stuff ECW did outside of probably the Sabu, Terry Funk, Barbed Wire match were those Ian Rotten, Axel Rotten matches. Chris Benoit against Al Snow. Shane Douglas against Tully Blanchard. And Cactus Jack against the Sandman. There's a reason ECW was very hot in 1995. For 95, that is a very good card. And again, like at this point, Diesel's just become the WWF champion and they've removed every bit of edge from his character whatsoever so that he could be good for the kids. Ah, they they don't know how to do baby faces. They just don't. And Hulk Hogan was feuding with the Taskmaster and the Dungeon of Doom with their lair and not hot water. So, a, a disjointed, disorganized bit of anarchy in a small sweatbox in Philadelphia, but tables are exploding around you. It's probably as good as wrestling's going to get at that point. And when you put that context into it, I can understand why this, in 1995, at the time, was like, yes, this is the one. This is the edgy stuff. This, this is what I want. This is what I want my wrestling to be. To grow into. But it's obviously not what Simon wants in his wrestling in 2024. But it was your bed and you lay in it, sir. And then Sabu came off the top rope and sent you through the mattress with it. I probably missed my free foot if it's 2024, Sabu. Yeah, but he tried again and you just had to lie there still. <laughs> Until he did it right. So, Lorcan, if people want to get in touch with you, after they get in touch with me, which they can do so on Simon Cross Free. Free for the minimum number of tables that would have been broken in this match had it gone to a 2-1 decision. But, like, sod maths, am I right, kids? (laughs) Anyway, Lorcan, how can people get in touch with you? My name's Lorcan Mullen. They can get in touch with me at L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A in AOL Online and N for the N in Netscape. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you put in at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. 
So, for the next episode, we've promised it for a long time, mainly to keep Lorcan sane. We have now bunched up our five-star projects, and this is our first multi-pack. I was going to say, not quite like the Walkers multi-packs, but they have moved them down to five packs now. But it is our first bank of five five-star matches. Now... Obviously, this is the first time we're doing this, so I'm very excited to see how we go about doing this. You and me both. So, first of our multi-pack is Kachachiko Nakajima versus Kento Miyahara in all Japan, taking place on New Year's Eve 2023. We then move into 2024. We move to Wrestle Kingdom. Katsuchika Akada versus Brian Danielson, part two. Then we take a bit of a left turn in terms of, like, volume on the five-star projects. We're off to CMLL. I think this is on the fifth. He didn't rate it the week it came out. He watched this retroactively. But it is between Templario and Mascara Dorada. The first ever CMLL match we'll be covering for Let Me Tell You Something. There you go. Why break the habit of a lifetime? We end up going right back to New Japan straight after. We go to Battle of the Valley, and it's a two-parter to to finish off the series. We first look at a no-disqualification match between John Moxley and Shingo Takagi. And then we look at another Katsuchika Okada match against, oh, I don't know... I think he's been on the list before, just about. Will Ospreay, funnily enough. <laughs> will this be the last match those two ever have, or will it be merely the middleway point? We have yet to know. But just to clarify, this will be the first time that we cover a CMLL match for the Meltzer Five Star Project. We have done two of them for Match of the Week, which obviously we've just finished now. But there's nothing really left for us to say, except that my name's Simon Cross. And my name's Lorca Mullen. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.